Chapter 2 of The Shades of the Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Shades of the Wilderness by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 2 The Northern Spy. But the night remained very quiet. Harry and Dalton, growing tired of sitting, walked about the camp and again looked to their horses, which, saddled and bridled, were nevertheless allowed to nip the grass as best they could at the end of their lariats. The last embers of the fire went out, but the moon and stars remained bright, and they saw dimly the sleeping forms of Lee and his generals. Harry, who had seen nothing strange in Meade's lack of pursuit, now wondered at it. Surely when the news of Vicksburg came, the exultant army of the Potomac would follow, and try to deliver a crushing blow. It was revealed to him as he stood silent in the moonlight that a gulf had suddenly yawned before the south. The slash of Grant's sword in the west had been terrible, and the wound that it made could not be cured easily. And the army of northern Virginia had not only failed in its supreme attempt, but a great river now flowed between it and Virginia. If the northern leaders gathering courage anew, should hurl their masses upon Lee's retreating force. Neither skill nor courage might avail to save them. He suddenly beheld the situation in all its desperation. He shivered from head to foot. Dalton saw the muscles of Harry's face quivering, and he noticed a pallor that came for an instant. I understand, he said. I had thought of it already. If a great northern general like Lee or Stonewall Jackson were behind us, we might never get back across the Potomac. It's somewhat the same position that we were in after Antietam. But we got no Stonewall Jackson now to help us. Again, that lump rose in Harry's throat. The vision of the sober figure on Little Sorrel leading his brigades to victory came before him, but it was a vision only. It's strange, though, we've not come in contact with their scouts or cavalry, he said. In that fight with Pleasanton, we saw what horsemen they've become, and a force of some kind must be hanging on our rear. If it's there, Sherburne and his troop will find it. I think I can detect signs of the enemy now, said Harry, putting his glasses to his eyes. See that hill far behind us? Can't you catch the gleam of lights on it? I think I can, replied Dalton, also using glasses. Four lights are there, and they are all winking, doubtless to lights on another hill too far away for us to see. It shows that the enemy at least is watching, and that while we may retreat unattacked, it will not be unobserved. Hark! You hear that, George? It's rifle shots, isn't it? Yes, and lots of them. But they're a long distance away. I don't think we could hear them at all if it were not night time. But it means something. There they go again. I believe it's a heavy skirmish, and it's in the direction in which Sherburne rode. The general's up. It's likely that one of us will be sent to see what it's all about. General Lee and his whole staff had risen and were listening attentively. The faint sound of many shots still came, and then a sharper, more penetrating crash, as if light field guns were at work. The commander beckoned to Harry. Ride towards it, he said briefly, and return with a report as soon as you can. Harry touched his cap, sprang upon his horse, and galloped away. He knew that other messengers would be dispatched also, but, as he had been sent first, he wished to arrive first. He found a path among the trees along which he could make good speed, and, keeping his mind fixed on the firing, he sped forward. Thousands of soldiers lay asleep in the woods and fields on either side of him, 
but the thud of the horses' hooves awakened few of them, nor did the firing disturb them. They had fought a great battle three days long, and then, after a tense day of waiting under arms, they had marched hard. What to them was the noise made by an affair of outposts, when they had heard so long the firing of a hundred and fifty thousand rifles and three or four hundred big guns? Not one in a hundred stood up to see. The country grew rougher, and Harry was compelled to draw his horse down to a walk. But the firing, a half a mile or more ahead, maintained its volume, and as he approached through thick underbrush, being able to find no other way, he dismounted and led his horse. Presently he saw beads of flame appearing among the bushes, seen a moment, then gone like a firefly, and as he went further he heard voices. He had no doubt that it was the southern pickets in the undergrowth, and, calling softly, he received confirmary replies. A rifleman, a tall, slender fellow, in ragged butternut, appeared beside him, and, recognizing Harry's near-gray uniform as that of an officer, said, "'They've dismounted cavalry on the other side of that creek that runs along over there among the bushes.' I don't think they mean any real attack. They expect to sting us a little and find out what we're about. Seems likely to me, too. They aren't strong enough, of course, for an attempt at rushing us. What troops are in there in the woods on our side? Captain Sherburne's cavalry, sir. They're a bit to our right, and they're dismounted, too. You'll find the captain himself on a little knoll about a hundred yards away. Thanks, said Harry, and leading his horse, he reached the knoll to find the rifleman's statement correct. Sherburne was kneeling behind some bushes, trying with the aid of glasses and moonlight to pick out the enemy. "'That you, Harry?' he said, glancing back. "'Yes, Captain. The General has sent me to see what you and the rest of you noisy fellows are doing, shooting across a creek at an enemy who first shot at us. It's only under provocation that we've roused the General and his staff from sleep. Use your glasses and see what you can make out on the bushes on the other side. Keep down, Harry. For heaven's sake, keep down. That bullet didn't miss you more than three inches.' You wouldn't be much loss of the army, of course, but you're my personal friend. Thanks for the advice. I intend to stay so far down that I'll lie almost flat. He meant to keep his word, too. The warning had been a stern one. Evidently the sharpshooters who lay in the thickets on the Union side of the creek were of the first quality. There's considerable moonlight, whispered Sherburne, and you mustn't expose an inch of your face. I take it that we have Custer's cavalry over there mixed with a lot of scouts and skirmishers from the northwest. Michigan and Wisconsin, most likely. They're the boys who can use the rifles in the woods. Had to do it before they came here, and they're a bad lot to go up against. It's pretty heavy fire for a mere scouting party. If they want to discover our location, they can do it without wasting so much powder and lead. I think it's more than a scout. They must have discovered long since just where we are. I imagine they mean to shake our nerve by constant buzzing and stinging. I fancy that Meade and his generals, after deciding not to pursue us, have changed their minds, perhaps under pressure from Washington, and mean to cut us off if they can. A little late, but not too late. We're still in the enemy's country. The whole population is dead against us, and we can't make a move that isn't known within an hour to the Union leaders. I tell you, Harry, that if we didn't have a Lee to lead, I'd be afraid that we'd never get out of Pennsylvania. But we have a Lee, and the question is settled. What a volley that was! Didn't you feel the twigs and leaves falling on your face? Yes, it went directly over our heads. It's a good thing we're lying so close. Perhaps they intend to force a passage of the creek and stampede at least a portion of our camp, and you're here to prevent it. I am. They can't cross the creek in face of our fire. We're good nighthawks. Every boy in the south knows the night in the woods, and here in the brush we're something like Indians. I'm a descendant of a famous Indian fighter myself, said Harry. And there, surrounded by deep gloom and danger, the spirit of his mighty ancestor, the great Henry Ware, descended upon him once more. 
an orderly had taken their horses to the rear where they would be out of range of the bullets and as they crouched low in the bushes sherburne looked curiously at him harry's face as he turned from the soldier to the indian fighter of old had changed to sherburne's fascinated glaze the eyes seemed amazingly vivid and bright like those of one who had learned to see in the dark the complexion was redder henry ware had always burned red instead of brown like one of those who sleeps oftener in the open air than in the house his whole look was dominant compelling and fierce as he leaned on his elbows and studied the opposing thickets through the glasses the glasses even did not destroy the illusion to sherburne who had learned harry's family history the great henry ware was alive and in the flesh before him he felt with all the certainty of truth that the union skirmishers in the thicket could not escape the keen eyes that sought them out i can see at least twenty men creeping among the bushes and seeking chances for shots whispered harry i know that you would see them it was harry's turn to give a look of curiosity what do you mean captain he said i knew that you had good eyes and i believed that with the aid of the glasses you would be able to trace figures despite the shelter of the bushes study the undergrowth again will you harry and tell me what more do you see there i don't need to study it i can tell at one look they're gathering a force maybe they mean to rush the creek at a shallow place is that force moving in any direction yes it's moving down the creek then we'll go down the creek with it we mustn't be lacking in hospitality sherburne drew a whistle from his pocket and blew a low call on it scores of shadowy figures rose from the undergrowth and followed his lead down the stream harry was still able to see that the force on the other side was increasing largely in numbers but sherburne reminded him that his duties as far as the coming skirmish was concerned were over general lee didn't send you here to get killed he said he wants you instead to report how many of us get killed you know that while the general is a kind man he can be stern too and you're not to take the risk the orderly is behind that hill with your horse and mine harry with a sigh fell back toward the hill but he did not yet go behind it where the orderly stood instead he lay down among the trees on the slope where he could watch what was going forward and once more his face turned to the likeness of the great indian fighter he saw sherburne's dismounted troop and others perhaps five hundred in all moving slowly through the bushes parallel to the stream and he saw a force which he surmised to be about of equal size creeping along in the undergrowth on the other side he followed both bodies with his glasses with long looking everything became clearer and clearer the moonlight had to him almost the brilliancy of day his eyes followed the union force until it came to a point where the creek ran shallow over pebbles then the union leader raised his sword uttered a cry of command and the whole force dashed at the ford the cry met its response in an order from sherburne and the thickets flamed with southern rifles the advantage was wholly with the south standing on the defense of dark undergrowth and the union troop despite its desperate attempts at the ford were beaten back with great loss harry waited until the result was sure and then he walked slowly over the hill toward the point where the orderly was waiting with the horses the man who knew him handed him the reins of his mount saying at the same time i have a note for you sir for me yes sir it was handed to me about fifteen minutes ago by a large man in our uniform whom i didn't know probably a dispatch that i'm to carry to general lee no sir it's addressed to you the note was written in pencil on a piece of coarse gray paper folded several times but with a large face enough to show harry's name upon it he wondered but said nothing to the sentinel and did not look at the note again until he had ridden some distance. 
He stopped in a little glade where the moonlight fell clearly. He still heard scattered firing behind him, but he knew that the skirmish was in reality over, and he concluded that no other attempt by Union detachments to advance would be made in the face of such vigilance. He could report to General Lee that the rear of his army was safe, so he would delay and look at the letter that had come to him out of the mysterious darkness. The superscription was in a large, bold hand, and read, Lieutenant Henry Kenton, Staff of General Robert E. Lee, C.S.A., Commander-in-Chief, Army of Northern Virginia. He felt instinctively that something uncommon was coming, and, as most people do when they are puzzled at the appearance of a letter, he looked at it for some seconds before opening it. Then he read, Mr. Kenton, I have warned you twice before, once when Jefferson Davis was inaugurated at Montgomery, and once again in Virginia. I told you that the South could never win. I told you that she might achieve brilliant victories, and she may achieve them even yet, but they will avail her nothing. Victories permit her to maintain her position for the time being, but they do not enable her to advance. A single defeat causes her to lose ground that she can never regain. I tell you this as a warning. Although your enemy, I have seen you more than once and talked with you. I like you, and would like to save your life if I could. I would induce you, if I could, to leave the army and return to your home, but that I know to be impossible. So, I merely tell you that you are fighting for a cause now lost. Perhaps it is pride on my part to remind you that my early predictions have come true, and perhaps it is a wish that the thought I may plant in your mind will spread to others. You have lost at Gettysburg a hope and an offense that you can never regain, and Grant at Vicksburg has given a death blow to the western half of the Confederacy. As for you, I wish you well. William J. Shepard Harry stared in amazement at this extraordinary communication, and read it over two or three times. He was not surprised that Shepard should be near, and that he should have been inside the Confederate lines, but that he should leave a letter, and such a letter for him was uncanny. His first feeling, wonder, was succeeded by anger. Did Shepard really think that he could influence him in such a way, that he could plant in his mind a thought that would spread to others of his age and rank and weaken the cause for which he fought? It was a singular idea, but Shepard was a singular man. But perhaps pride in recalling the prediction that he had made long ago was Shepard's stronger motive, and Harry took fire at that also. The Confederacy was not beaten. A single defeat, no, it was not a defeat, merely a failure to win, was not mortal. And as for the West, the Confederacy would gather itself together there and overwhelm Grant. Then came a new emotion, a kind of gratitude for Shepard. The man was really a friend and would do him a service if it could be done without injuring his own cause. He could not feel any doubt of it, else the spy would not have taken the risk to send him such a letter. He read it for the last time, and then tore it into little pieces which he entrusted to the winds. The firing behind him had died completely, and there was no sound but the rustle of dry leaves in the light wind, nothing to tell that there had been sharp fighting along the creek, and that men lay dead in the forest. The moon and the stars clothed everything in a whitish light that seemed supercharged with a powerful essence, and this essence was danger. The spirit of the great forest ranger descended upon him once more, and he read the omens, all of which were sinister. He foresaw terrible campaigns, mighty battles in the forest, and a roll of the dead so long that it seemed to stretch away to infinity. Then he shook himself violently, cast off the spell, and rode rapidly back with his report. 
Lee had risen and was standing under a tree. He was fully dressed, and his uniform was trim and unwrinkled. Harry thought anew, as he rode up, what a magnificent figure he was. He was the only great man he ever saw who really looked his greatness. Nothing could stir that calm. Nothing could break down that loftiness of manner. Harry was destined to feel then, as he felt many times afterward, that without him the South had never a chance, and the choking came in his throat again, as he thought of him who was gone, of him who had been the right arm of victory, the hammer of Thor. But he hid all these feelings as he quickly dismounted and saluted the commander-in-chief. "'What have you seen, Lieutenant Kenton?' asked Lee. "'A considerable detachment of the enemy tried to force a passage of the creek at our right rear.' They were met by Captain Sherburne's troop, dismounted and three companies of infantry, and were driven back after a sharp fight. Very good. Captain Sherburne is an alert officer. He turned away, and Harry, giving his horse to an orderly, again resumed his old position under a tree, out of hearing of the generals, but in sight. Dalton was not there, but he knew that skirmishing had occurred in other directions, and doubtless the Virginian had been sent on an errand like his own. He had a sense of rest and realization as he leaned back against the tree, but it was mental tension, not physical, for which relief came, and Shepard, much more than the battle at the creek, was in his thoughts. The strong personality of the spy and his seeming omniscience oppressed him again. Apparently he was able to go anywhere, and nothing could be hidden from him. He might be somewhere in the circling shadows at that very moment, watching Lee and his lieutenants. His pulses leapt. Shepard had achieved an extraordinary influence over him, and he was prepared to believe the impossible. He stood up and stared into the bushes, but sentinels stood there, and no human being could pass their ring unseen. Presently Dalton came, made a brief report to General Lee, and joined his comrade. Harry was glad of his arrival. The presence of a comrade brought him back to Earth and Earth's realities. The sinister shadows that oppressed him melted away, and he saw only the ordinary darkness of a summer night. The two sat side by side. Dalton, perhaps, drew as much strength as Harry from the comradeship, and they watched other messengers arrive with dispatches, some of whom rolled themselves in their blankets at once and wanted to sleep, although three, who had evidently slept in the day, joined Harry and Dalton in their vigil. Harry saw that the commander-in-chief was holding a council at that hour, nearer morning than midnight. The general kicked up some of the pieces of burned wood together and fanned them into a light flame, enough to take away the slight chill that was coming with the morning. The men stood around it and talked a long time, although it seemed to Harry that Lee said least. Nevertheless, the tall figure dominated them all. Now and then Harry saw his face in the starshine, and it bore its habitual grave and impassive look. The youth did not hear a word that was said, but his imaginative power enabled him to put himself in the place of the commander-in-chief. He knew that no man, however great his courage, could fail to appreciate his position in the heart of a hostile country, with a lost field behind him, and with superior numbers hovering somewhere in his rear or on his flank. He realized then, to the full, the critical nature of their position, and what a mighty task Lee had to save the army. One of his young comrades whispered to him that the Potomac, the barrier between north and south, was rising, flooded by heavy rains in both mountains and lowlands, and that a body of northern cavalry had already destroyed a pontoon bridge built by the south across it. They might be hemmed in, with their backs to an unfordable river, and an enemy two or three times the number in front. Don't you worry, whispered Dalton, with sublime confidence. The general will take us to Virginia. 
Harry projected his imagination once more. He sought to put himself in the place of Lee, receiving all the reports and studying them, trying to measure space that could not be measured, and to weigh a total that could not be weighed. Greatness and responsibility were compelled to pay thrice over for themselves, and he was glad that he was only a young lieutenant, the chief business of whom was to fetch and carry orders. Shafts of sunlight were penetrating the eastern foliage when the council broke up, and shortly before daylight the southern army was again on the march, with northern cavalry and riflemen hanging on its flanks and rear. Harry was permitted to rejoin, for a while, his friends of the Invincibles, where he found Colonel Leonidas Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire riding very erect, a fine color in their faces. "'You come from headquarters, Harry, and therefore you are omniscient,' said Colonel Talbot. "'We heard fighting in the night. What did it mean? Only skirmishers, Colonel. I think they wanted to annoy us, but they paid the price. Inevitably, our general is as dangerous in retreat as in advance.' I fancy that General Meade will not bring up his lagging forces until we near the Potomac. They say it's rising, sir, and it will be very hard to cross. That creates a difficulty, but not an impossibility. Ordinary men yield to difficulties. Men like our commander-in-chief are overcome only by impossibilities. But the further we go, Harry, the more reconciled I grow to our withdrawal. I have seen scarcely a friendly face among the population. I would not have us thrust ourselves upon people who do not like us. It would go very hard with our kindly southern nature to have to rule by force over people who are in fact our brethren. Defensive wars are the just wars, and perhaps it will be really better for us to retire to Virginia and protect its sacred soil from the tread of the invader, eh, Hector? Right as usual, Leonidas. The reasons for our retirement are most excellent. We have already spoken of the fact that Philadelphia might prove a capua for our young troops, and now we are relieved from the chance of appearing as oppressors. It can never be said of us by the people of Pennsylvania that we were tyrants. It's an invidious task to rule over the unwilling, even when one rules with justice and wisdom. It's strange, perhaps, Leonidas, but it's a universal truth that people would rather be ruled by themselves in a second-rate manner than by a foreigner in a first-rate manner. Now, the government of our states is attacked by northern critics, but such as it is, it is ours, and it's our first choice. Do we bore you, Harry? Not at all, sir. I never listened to either you or Colonel Talbot without learning something. The two colonels bowed politely. I have wished for some time to speak to you about a certain matter, Hector, said Colonel Talbot. What is it, Leonidas? During the height of that tremendous artillery fire from Little Round Top, I was at a spot where I could see the artillerymen very well whenever the smoke lifted. Several times I noticed an officer directing the fire of the guns, and I don't think I could have been mistaken in his identity. No, Leonidas, you were not. I too observed him, and we could not possibly be mistaken. It was John Carrington, of course. Dear John Carrington, who was with us at West Point, the greatest artilleryman in the world, and he was facing us when the fortunes of the South were turning on a hair, and if any other man had been there directing those guns, we might have taken Cemetery Hill. That's true, Leonidas, but it was not possible for any other man to be in such a place at such a time. Granting that such a crisis would arise and that it would arise at Gettysburg, you and I would have known long before that John would be there and that his guns would stop us. Why, we saw that quality in him all the years we were with him at West Point. The world has never seen and never will see such artilleryman as John Carrington. Good old John. I hope he wasn't killed. And I hope so, too, from the bottom of my heart. But we'll know before many days... How will you find out? 
asked Harry curiously. Both colonels laughed genially. Because he will send us signs, unmistakable signs, replied Colonel Talbot. I don't understand, sir. His signs will be the shells, shrapnel, and solid shot. We may not have a battle this week or next week, but the next one is bound to come some time or other, and if any section of the northern artillery shows uncommon deadliness and precision, we'll know that Carrington is there. Why, we can recognize his presence as readily as the deer scents the hunter. We'll have many notes to compare with him when this war is over. Harry sincerely hoped that the three would meet in friendship around some festive table, and he was moved by the affection and admiration the two colonels felt for Carrington. Doubtless the great artilleryman's feelings toward them were the same. They went into camp once more that night in a pleasant rolling country of high hills, rich valleys, scattered forests, and swift streams of clear water. Harry liked this northern land, which was not yet so far from the south. It was not more beautiful than his own Kentucky, but it was much trimmer and neater than the states toward the gulf. He saw all about him the evidences of free labor, the proof that man worked more readily and with better results when the success or failure were all his own. He was too young to spend much time in concentrated thinking, but as he looked upon the neat Pennsylvania houses and farms and the cultivated fields, he felt the curse of black slavery in the South and he felt also that it was for the South itself to abolish it, and not for the armed hand of the outsider, an outsider with whom its removal meant no financial loss or dislocation. Despite himself, his mind dwelt upon these things longer than before. He disliked slavery, his father disliked it, and nearly all their friends and relatives, and here they were fighting for it as one of the two great reasons of the Civil War. He felt anew how strangely things come about, and what even the wisest cannot choose their own courses as they wish them. A fire, chiefly for cooking purposes, had been built for the general and his staff in a cove surrounded by trees. A small cold spring gushed from the side of the hill, flowed down the center of the cove, and then made its way through the trees into a wider world beyond. It was a fine little spring, and before the general came, the younger members of the staff knelt and drank deeply at it. It brought thoughts of home to all the young rovers of the woods, who had drunk a thousand times before at such springs as this. Soon Lee and his general sat there on the stones or on the moss. Longstreet, Stuart, Pickett, Alexander, Ewell, Early, Hill, and many others, some suffering from wounds, were with their commander, while the young officers, who were to fetch and carry, sat on the fringe of the woods, or stretched themselves on the turf. Harry was in the group, but except in extreme emergency he would not be on duty that night, as he had already been twenty-four hours in the saddle. Nevertheless, he was not yet sleepy, and lying on his blanket he watched the leaders confer, as they had conferred every other night since the Battle of Gettysburg. He was aware, too, that the air was heavy with suspense and anxiety. He breathed it in with every breath. Cruel doubt was not shown by words or actions, but in an atmosphere which one could not mistake. Word had been brought in the afternoon by hard riders of Stuart that the Potomac was still rising. It could not be forded, and the active northern cavalry was in between, keeping advanced parties of the southern army from laying pontoons. Every day made the situation more desperate, and it could not be hidden from the soldiers, who nevertheless marched tearfully on, in the sublime faith that Lee would carry them through. Harry knew that if the Army of the Potomac was not active in pursuit, its cavalrymen and skirmishers were. 
as on the night before he heard the faint report of shots and he knew that rough work was going forward along the doubtful line where the fringes of the two armies almost met but hardened so much was he that he fell asleep while the generals were still in anxious counsel and the fitful firing continued in the distant dark end of chapter two recording by michael packard of western colorado